and welcome to Naturally Educated. I am your host, Majal Qasmi, and with me, as always, Abdurrahman Zahabi. And today, guys, we're going to be talking about microplastics and bioaccumulation in marine organisms. We've got a really good show today, but first, Abdurrahman, hit us with the follow. Get in touch with us, reach out with your comments. If you have a story to tell or even to tell us what you think of the podcast, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all under Environment Abu Dhabi, one word. And you can also find more on the website or the YouTube channel of Environmental Agency Abu Dhabi. Just look it up like that. Give us a like as well and hit the subscribe button wherever you find or listen to our podcast. So with us today for our Naturally Educated episode is Arabella Willing, Senior Manager of Conservation, Outreach, and Citizen Science with Emirates Nature, WWF. And she's also known as the Turtle Lady. She's got expertise in marine species like turtles, dolphins, and dugongs, as well as fish. So Arabella, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, listen, let's get into some background first. So the context on this issue of plastic in the world's oceans, considering how fishing practices deeply embedded in sort of the tradition and the history of the UAE and oil wealth of the nation, the issue of plastics has a significant resonance. It's something that the nation is taking steps to address. And we really are trying to become free of those single-use plastics. And it's a priority, obviously, from Abu Dhabi government. But I'd, I'd like to have you paint a picture for us. Sure. So, I mean, plastic's an amazing substance, right? It can be any color, it can be any shape. It's pretty cheap to manufacture. It's very good for sterilizing things. It's, it's quite light. It's an incredible substance. And yeah. I think the, the core of the issue is that it's not given the value that it deserves, you know? Agreed. Often it's used for products that um, are considered disposable. And, and it's kind of crazy to think that if you're drinking a little bottle of water takes you what like 10 seconds to chug that water down but that bottle can survive for like decades so it's a bit of a mismatch and I think that's the core of the issue and essentially what's happened is that because plastic's so good at staying in nature and it's so resilient that about 75% of all plastic ever produced is now waste it's not used anymore so that's the core of the issue I think it's how we use it not the substance itself and to think where plastics exist in our lives I'm sure if the listeners took literally just two minutes to look around them and slowly pick up where plastic is. I think there's a lot of time we take it for granted where plastic is. And in the manufacturing to waste cycle, plastic is quite a significant component of that. And as you say, it's the danger if we take it for granted and it just becomes more and more waste. We're talking about Abu Dhabi taking this very seriously and you're in the marine space. I wonder, Abdullah, if you've got a question. Arabella, you discussed, obviously, the importance of plastic, plastics in general as a material. Now, we all know that a lot of us use it, and there is a huge effect on our lives in general. We're told a lot to reduce our use of single-use plastic. Let's make this a bit more relevant. How does plastic, from your perspective, affect the marine species and fish in specific? So about a third of all plastic ends up in nature. And it can be really damaging and the different types and sizes of plastic have different impacts, right? So the larger pieces end up entangling wildlife and used to do post-mortems on 
things like dugongs and dolphins and turtles and we would find plastic either tangled around them which meant that they would drown those animals all breathe air so although they live underwater they need to be able to rise up and take a breath so entanglement is a big issue and fish as well of course and discarded fishing gear that's made of plastic is a big killer that's known as ghost gear and it's designed to entrap things right so that's those bigger pieces are mostly entanglement as they get a bit smaller, the issues tends to be um, they're mistaken for food. Yeah, that's not a good thing. Yeah, this well-known that turtles like to eat jellyfish and, and plastic bags can often look like jellyfish. And again, that can either fill up their stomach so they can't fit any real food in there and they end up dying of kind of starvation. Or it can cause what we call an impaction. So it kind of blocks and obstructs the digestive tract. And then as you get smaller, even further, as the, as the plastic gets into smaller and smaller pieces, because mostly plastic doesn't degrade in the way that something, a natural substance would. It just sort of breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces. And those little pieces can get sort of filtered out by wildlife that's filter feeding. And those little pieces of plastic often contain a much higher concentration of toxic chemicals. Because plastics, you know, made from oil. Of course, yeah. And a lot of contaminants are hydrophobic. So they don't like to mix with water, but they kind of attach to the plastic. So you can find those little bits of plastic have a much higher concentration of toxic chemicals in them. And so the creatures that eat them end up also accidentally ingesting all these quite toxic substances which can accumulate so as it goes up the food chain those toxins get stronger and stronger and it ends up essentially causing all sorts of issues for the species that are at the top of the food chain the ones that we love like the dolphins and the and the whales and the turtles and yeah and i guess in in, in specific here single-use plastics i suppose impacts this issue even further right yeah for sure because unfortunate that something that's used for such a short amount of time is then just thrown away. And that increases the amount of litter, I suppose. Single-use plastics is yeah. mostly about the amount of litter that's reaching nature. And of course, as well, there's so much virgin material. So I don't know if either of you have heard of nurdles. Do you know what a nurdle is? Uh -uh. No, I'm making a face here. A nurdle? <laughs> I'm thinking my kid was like, Bubba, I want a nurdle. For <laughs> I don't know. So nurdles are tiny little pieces of plastic that are the pre-production like feedstock for oh yeah they have a name they look like little like bb's or ball bearings or, or yeah. like they're, they're like little bits of plastic i don't know how like almost like rice you could yeah like, like a lentil yeah like a lentil, lentil. Yeah, yeah yeah and they are so places that make plastic are not the same as the companies that make you know the stand that the laptop is sitting on right mm -hmm. now right so the little plastic pellets get shipped from the different parts of the product chain and mm -hmm. they spill into nature as well so we find nurdles on beaches all over the world and they haven't even become that plastic bottle that oh, you wow. don't use for more than 10 seconds so it's the use of virgin materials as well that we want to try to avoid because that can also be polluting there was, there was something as well i was when you were talking about sort of the the larger marine species that do breathe air and entanglement but if i'm not mistaken with what little veterinary knowledge i have of marine marine species but sharks have to move to be able to breathe and entanglement of sharks is just as bad it's not that they need the oxygen but they need to move and if they're trapped they're also having uh problems as well yeah to that point i wonder then of all of this plastic 
that is ingested, which which marine species or, or fish for that matter, are you finding the highest levels of? So so you're opening up and doing all this post-mortem, these, these autopsies. Where are you looking or has it been studied even? Where's all of this plastic ending up in the most? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I wouldn't say I have the data to hand on, on which species is the most impacted, but there's, I think, something around 240 species that have published data that they've been ingesting plastic. Wow. For sure, it's definitely an issue with seabirds as well. I think there's about, the statistics are about a million seabirds a year are killed from plastic pollution. Wow. So I guess it's the things that eat food that looks like plastic. And probably the filter feeders are disproportionately affected as well because they have no means of kind of choosing what it is that they're taking in in the way that um whatever's in the environment yeah they're not actively hunting in the same way i'd I'd add to that i guess you mentioned earlier sort of at the top of the pyramid the food pyramid or food web where you have this concentration right if a small fish is eating a little bit of microplastic but a fish big fish is eating a lot of small fish along with whatever else it ingests you're sort of having this sort of concentration in that as well yeah so that's the concentration of the chemicals rather than the plastic itself generally the plastic piece would stay in the body and then it's things like the additives so for example there's an additive that's used in plastic that mimics hormones so it's affecting fertility and not to scare anyone but we also as humans tend to accidentally ingest quite a lot of plastic so the WWF's been involved in a study that estimated that humans eat about five grams of plastic a week, which is about the same as a credit card. Wow. Wow. That's (laughs) kind of like, I'm just sitting here in front of my wallet going, okay, I'm going to put this in. That's my one year's worth. (laughs) That's one week. One week's worth. Oh, sorry. One week's worth. Yeah. (laughs) One week and we just take it easy, Majid. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to take a plastic diet. (laughs) So Arabella, I, um, you know, obviously this is not good news for a lot of people that are listening. And can you put this in perspective for us? So how does this plastic that we eat through our diet can affect us? How does it affect us? And how dangerous is it if ingested over time throughout a certain period of time? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that lots of people are studying. So we actually don't have good understanding yet of the impact on our health. But of course, as well, different plastics have different impacts and Mm -hmm. different additives have different impacts. So it's not it's not that well known yet how it impacts us. Mm. But most of the research that has been done has suggested it's not a good thing. Yeah, what we do understand about sort of different compounds that do affect our hormonal balance. I mean, these are the chemicals that create cycles and allow us to respond to different things in the environment, our digestion, our health. And as you start to sort of play with these relationships with hormones, these can cycle out of sync and then people will exhibit problems. And Unfortunately, sometimes people will think they've got one disease or malady when in fact it's simply a disruption of hormones, not that they are sick or have a problem. And, and that in there lies the, the, the challenge. You mentioned, Arabella, that, that it's single-use plastics are, are sort of a big culprit and OW is dealing with that. But could you give us like the definition, if you will, or better help explain to the listeners what single-use plastics are? And then you've mentioned already that they don't break over time, but what is it we can look at if they're not breaking up? What should we be doing? I mean, throwing them into the environment obviously is not what we want to do, but help us understand single-use plastics. 
Sure. So a single-use plastic is something that's designed to, to be disposable, to be used just once mm -hmm. um, or only a couple of times maximum, right? So that mm -hmm. might be the plastic, thin plastic bag that you might find in a supermarket, like a water bottle. But there's also plastics that are found in sort of mixed materials stuff. So if you were to take like a juice box or a milk carton, for example, that's that Tetra Pak style, mm -hmm. that's got like a plastic layer in it because it's mixed with other substances like cardboard or metal. It's very hard to then separate those materials and therefore recycle them. So obviously the best thing to do would be to keep a material in use for as long as possible. So that's where... I'm sure people have heard of the reduce, reuse, recycle yeah. mantra, I suppose. So yeah, wherever you can, avoiding single-use plastic is the best course of action. And then reducing as much as you can. Obviously, there's times when you do need to, to use it, especially in a medical situation where you need something to be sterile and you, you don't want to be risking your health just to avoid single-use plastic, right? So mm -hmm. reducing where you can and being kind of kind to yourself when you can't. And then recycling if, as a last resort, really. And actually recycling is a lot harder than people think. There's actually quite sort of sad statistics around the amount of waste that's actually recycled. So it's only around 9%. Mm. And because of those mixed materials and contamination, it is really, really tricky. So wherever we can, reducing and reusing is ideal. And, and plastic's not, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's not necessarily the enemy. As long as it's kept in use for as long as possible and disposed of properly, yeah. it's not the plastic itself that's the enemy. It's the way we use it. Yeah, as long as we reuse it because it's, it is light and it's cheap and it's good. You know, So if you were to start using single-use glass bottles instead mm. of single-use plastic bottles, that's also not good because glass is very energy intensive to create it's very heavy which means that there's more carbon emissions when it's being shipped around the place so mm -hmm. yeah it's not necessarily looking at plastic as the enemy but looking at single use as the thing we want to avoid true true and um, you know i always try to think about these issues in a simpler manner and do the best i can but sometimes you need the policies or the help of governments and so on to kind of like make it easier for you to make these decisions and honestly uh, we heard of course about the abu dhabi uh, executive committee deciding on on a very very good policy which i'll let you talk about in a second but i want you to explain to us like what is the UAE in general doing and uh, what has been done already? What is the future of policymaking in this sector? Yeah, I think plastic is actually one of those issues where the the community and the people are really demanding change in a way that you don't see in, in some other issues. And I think often the community are ahead of the game in terms of the policy that, they're, that they want. So it's a really interesting topic and it's one that people are incredibly passionate about, especially young people. So we run a youth program called connect with nature along with the environment agency Abu Dhabi mm -hmm. and <laughs> um and just constantly all the all the community were asking for was plastics and cleanups and everyone was so so passionate about it so that's a good place to start I think for policy making because there's a lot of appetite already for it and I think that means that people are more likely to be willing to do things that might be a little bit more inconvenient, for example. But yeah, there's different policies in different emirates around phasing out single-use plastic. It's not really fair to just suddenly put in place a ban where bit small businesses and people are not don't have alternatives yet that are better or, you know, you don't want to cripple someone's business. So, yeah, um, yeah you think about all the delivery of food, even when you said the water 
bottles are single use. I was like, well, I've never defined them that way. They were always water bottles and you kind of, you know, deal with and dispose, but they are technically single use if you throw them away after the first time you've drank out of them. It's a challenge because there's a lot of business that's developed around plastic, right? Or the reliance of plastic and the way it's used. Yeah, you cannot just ban it outright. There needs to be a transition. And this is where these policies are so important. Yeah, for sure. And I think consultation as well with the community is really vital. Um, and I know that the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi had a task force of people from different industries to to come together and give feedback on the policy and the implementation of the policy. So that's really, really great. That's kind of best practice where it's you no know, listening to the recommendations from people on the ground who are going to have to deal with these changes of when they come in. I think awareness is really high actually on plastic. Most people understand that it's not great and they don't like the look of litter in nature. Mm. But it's a case of making it the cheapest, easiest thing for people to do because human behavior is always going to be the path of least resistance, right? So yeah. it's about creating a system that means that the right thing to do is the easiest thing to do. So that's what we're aiming for. That, that in our daily lives, and it's unfortunate when sources there get into our waterways, but the fishing industry uses a lot of plastic already. I mean, it's quite a unique material it, you know, in, in certain ways you know, defies corrosion is the one way I'd maybe put it. But, um, you know, discarded fishing gear is a huge problem. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, it is a huge problem because it's designed to to kill wildlife right like and that, and for our for good True. reasons you know we've got to feed yeah. our families but of course if it's left out in nature it's then a complete trap for for mm -hmm. wildlife so yeah the main issue comes when it's discarded fishing gear or fishing gear that's snapped off and broken and it can end up being entangled in the coral reefs or it can end up trapping wildlife so yeah it's a major issue and it's one that is sensitive as well because we don't want to stop people from doing what's part of their heritage or and part of mm. an important part of the food security of of the nation as well so it's definitely one that there's some gear adaptations that can be done to yeah. make it less dangerous but yeah it's it's a case of again consultation with the community and making sure that there's not insensitive changes to policy that then would end up in fishing community really struggling to True. continue. There's also the fact that when we do look at fishing equipment and what's used, I think a lot about how building awareness and also the understanding that you leave the environment as you found it. So as fishermen and fishing communities rely on that ecosystem, that we help raise awareness. Not that they're ignorant to it, but sometimes it needs reinforcing to say, okay, well, if you lose a line, you lose a net, it's it's your responsibility to make sure you don't impact that environment. And those nets are not just floating to the bottom and inert, but they catch a lot in them. And sometimes if they fall on coral areas, major impact, sort of bringing that awareness out into, it's not just, you know, the plastics we understand, but our tools and our reliance on them means also the responsibility to recover them, uh, you know, when we can. For sure. And, and the fishing community don't want environmental degradation because that's yeah. their lifeline, right? That's, yeah, absolutely. They're pretty aware that, that nature provides their livelihood. Absolutely. I was going to ask you, uh, Arabella, you mentioned earlier that recycling plastic or maybe waste in general is amounts to only 9% of the total plastic collected or, or produced in the world. Is that correct? Hold on, guys. I'm looking it up here. 
9% of all plastics produced are recycled. Yeah. Whoa, <laughs> that, that is the percentage of a percentage. <laughs> that means yeah. there's a lot of plastics that are produced but never sent to recycle in the first place. Yeah. But then the ones that are sent to recycle, which is a small percentage, are not being recycled. So I just want to know, why are they not being recycled? What is the issue here? What's What's stopping us from doing it? Yeah, I think there's a multitude of issues. One is that often products are not designed to be recycled and that makes it really challenging. There's only, you know, even in a water bottle, which is quite easy to be recycled, the label and the lid and the yeah. bottle itself are all made of different types of plastic and those different types of plastic all have different melting points. You can't just throw that whole bottle with the lid and the label into the recycling system. You know, it needs to be separated. And that's really intensive. And the economics of it don't really make a lot of sense. It's much cheaper, actually, to use virgin materials. So economically, it's a bit tricky to make a case for recycling often. Um, the other issue is that the infrastructure required to have all those different separate bins and, this, and the amount of kind of adherence to proper separation that's required mm. for recycling to actually be effective is also really challenging. So the ultimate goal is, is a circular economy where products are designed waste is designed out of the system like products are designed to be reused or to be shared maybe it's not that you know there's not owned by the individual perhaps there's extended producer responsibility and the products are made with all the same material so that it's much easier than for them to be separated effectively and, and recycled and there's very simple examples that producers can use so for example food trays mm -hmm. if you have a black food tray it makes the food look more enticing but it means that some of the automatic separating machines that use kind of lasers and stuff to identify what type of plastic it is can't recognize the black plastic so if the producers just make it out of dark blue and or dark dark purple it looks the same but it means that it can be more easily separated by automated machinery so yeah i think it's it's across the board everybody's responsible across the life cycle of a product and there's things that everyone can do. I was just going to comment on something. So, you know, with Abu Dhabi introducing this policy of uh, plastic-free, uh, you know, no single-use plastics, uh, especially at grocery stores and supermarkets, I noticed that some grocery stores immediately were pr almost proactive or immediately responded to the call. Some of them, I was surprised to find that they have produced cassava bags almost within a couple of months from producing this law. And in my mind, I thought all these years, industry could have acted really fast and produced these solutions, plastic bags that are made out of cassava. So they're actually biodegradable. Maybe they're not the best environmental solution, but they're biodegradable. And I think, you know, at some point when, when government steps in and industry and people will follow easily as well in, in certain scenarios. Yeah, I think there's really like very basic solutions. I, I remember there was one... I think it was Adnoc, just gave all of their employees the training to ask people if they wanted a bag, right? They had a little badge that was like, do you want a bag? Simply asking the question probably reduced, I don't have any data on it, but probably reduced the amount of plastic bags by an absolute mm. ton because who needs a plastic bag for like the little bit of gum that they got in the petrol station, right? Yeah, true. And then one of my favorite things to do is just to use a box that the shop has anyway for yeah. stacking the shelves, right? So they just have a stash of boxes that are not we're going to be recycled anyway or there's lots of really great companies in the UAE now who are, who are sending food in boxes without any plastic packaging and so on mm -hmm. so the 
there's lots of alternatives available. And I think even just having a small fee, although it's affordable, it just it's just one little hurdle that means that people just a bit more mindful about it. And that's a, a great first step. In fact, that sort of like little fee gets you to pause and sort of just check. I've often refused bags as is because so long as I can fit it in my two hands, it'll sit in the car next to me while I drive home. And being half German, I've grown up seeing what you described, which is you take the cardboard box from the store and it, maybe it's one of these like bulk stores, but they have these boxes available and you just pack other things into these boxes and you walk out with those or like we do today, all our cars have tote bags, reusable bags, rather than getting the the plastic, if it is at all available from the store. And it's just about these like small behavioral changes that are important to sort of build out into the communities, M- make it normal behavior, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I wanted to make one more comment when, when Abdurrahman was like, why didn't they do this before? Well, the bottom line. And that's why we need mm-hmm. policy, right? For for, yeah. for companies, it's probably cheaper and more effective to have plastic, which is a brilliant material that's lightweight, that can carry everything without becoming heavier for you to carry, right? You're shopping. But ultimately, those cassava bags or all of these other reusable bags have to come with a behavioral shift and a policy. And that's why it kind of has this whole of community or all of stakeholder engagement uh, that you need for these changes, right? That's ultimately where we're going is to make everybody responsible for this part of the uh, the change. And I think it's funny as well, the power that we have as a community and humans really want to fit in. It's like such mm-hmm. an innate part of us. And it's funny if I ever have to use a plastic bag, I like look around like, oh, I wouldn't see anyone I know. Like, <laughs> like, I, it's not part of my personal branding. Yeah, yeah. I, I also feel in the office when we have too many plastic bottles, I'm like, guys, we, we need to stop doing this. Like glass, <laughs> you know, and and it's it's one of those things where we're just like, okay, we need to act on this again. Having said that and having all of these people sort of different stakeholders come in to bring more of a change. I was wondering maybe what technological innovations might be required or what innovations are even possible to sort of make this this change happen. Yeah, well, one of my favorite things is is a concept called citizen science. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that before? I have, but the listeners could get a nice little description from you. <laughs> so citizen science is where research and science and conservation is done by absolutely anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to have a PhD in marine biology to contribute to conservation and, and policy change as well and advocacy. So citizen science is, yeah, it's science that's done by the community. And there's a really cool citizen science around plastics and especially plastics found in nature. So this brilliant policy that's been introduced um, around the country and in Abu Dhabi, it's vital to see if it's working, right? And how do we know if it's working? Well, there's less plastic litter in nature. And how do we know if that's the case? Well, we have to go out and look. And anybody in Abu Dhabi, no matter whether you're, you know, five years old or uh, 95 years old, can, can help with that. So Speaking of technology, we all are carrying around in our pockets this incredible tool that mm-hmm. is not only a GPS, but also it's a camera and it's um, you know connected to the internet and everything. So there's apps out there and there's apps that are in development that will allow people to 
tell us what plastic they're seeing out in nature. And that's really valuable data to monitor the effectiveness of the policies and monitor the situation. So you can categorize the litter that you're finding with a geotag. So we know where it is that you're finding it. And it can be used to make the policies as effective as possible and also to inform which are the priority areas, which are the priority yeah. items that we need to work on. Mm -hmm. So it's a really great way for people to use their power to be empowered to be a part of the solution and not just feel helpless in at the sight of huge swathes of plastic on the beach or even in the desert it, i know it can be overwhelming and it can be really kind of devastating and it can make you want to just turn away but um with with an action like that you can really be a part of the solution and and demonstrate good behavior so imagine what a great role model that is to your kids or to another family on the side of the beach if they see you cleaning it up the rubbish that they threw away like yeah. it's all part of um changing this attitude and making people feel like they can do something it's it's not a helpless situation true and, and i think it's the best approach honestly it just gets people engaged um and and it kind of introduced them to other parts of nature that maybe they wouldn't have you know, have been introduced to. I wonder, by the way, if you have uh, any tips and tricks, do you have a specific app that uh, you guys put together or a website that we can go to? Yeah, so I use an app called Clean Swell, which is actually made by the Ocean Conservancy. I know that the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi are working on their own app. Oh, um, yeah, it's not uh, completely ready yet, but keep your eyes out for that, everybody. Super. Good. With your work with the Emirates Nature and WWF, um, you've got obviously a lot of different things going, but there's a program called the Leaders of Change where you're looking to build capacity in the community, encourage participants to advocate for system level change, right? To get everybody to come together. Um, and really, I, I wanted the listeners to understand what that work looks like and what that involves with this Leaders of Change uh, work you're doing? So the concept, I guess, behind Leaders of Change is that we're a small team and we're very passionate, but mm -hmm. I think everybody, in order to solve these enormous crises that we're facing and, and to reach our goals, which are net zero by 2050, and also to have a nature positive future where biodiversity is thriving as well, we need everybody to be um, helping us and we need everybody to be leading others, right? Um, and I would like to say that every job is an environmental job. If you mm -hmm. think about like Whatever that. job you do, you have an impact. Every single person has an impact and you have power as well, right? You have power to influence others and you have the power to advocate for change. So Leaders of Change is a program where we want to bring people into the fold and, and help them understand some of the issues, help them feel proud of, of this incredible country that we live in and, and show them the incredible variety of life that we have here. There's so much left to save. It's mm. not a situation where we need to feel doom and gloom actually spending time in nature is phenomenal it's so beautiful and important for our mental health and our physical health so getting people out into nature and appreciating what we have and and what is worth saving and considering in decision making and considering in any policy that's made all these huge companies are run by humans right so it's mm -hmm. just getting them to engage their hearts and their inner animal and be out in their natural environment mm -hmm. so yeah, the, the program is really about transformative impact at scale and leveraging our incredible community to advocate for change in whichever sphere they operate in, whether it be at their school or their community or at work or 
you know, in their clubs or just even mm. with their family. So it's giving that power back to everybody and, and saying, you know, you can be a part of the positive future. How could an employee that, uh, let's say, that is new to, the, to a company or just joined a new organization or something, how could they bring up issues like that to their employers or to the, to the leaders of the company? Yeah, and it's a funny one because I think often sustainability is seen as something that's like boring or it's something that you have to cut back and it's less than and it's not as fun. But actually, I think sustainability is is great. It means that we have brilliant stories behind our food that they're grown from some guy that we recognize his face from around the corner. And, um, you know, how much nicer is it to drink from a glass cup than from a, a plastic bottle? And, yeah. and, you know, I think no one likes to commute, really. It's not very fun to sit in the car for, you know, over an hour every day. No one enjoys that. It's, it's more fun to, you know, be walking around your garden and, and, you know, cooking your own food and being maybe working remotely. So I think the the good life as we envisage it actually <laughs> is a sustainable life. It's not necessarily about having the biggest that's and best true. car. That's it's true. maybe about getting to where you want to go in a nice, easy way. That's fun with your friends. And, you know, I think it's repositioning sustainability and environmentally friendliness as something that's not necessarily more expensive, not necessarily less nice than the alternatives. So Arabella, I, I want you to kind of inspire us, okay? Give us give us uh, your vision of how we can be good advocates for the environment, how to reduce plastics uh, in a good way. And I want to ask this question in, in, in a specific way because think about the, the employee that, you know, has a nine to five job and they only have a particular amount of hours in the day or just simply a couple hours on the weekend. What should they be doing? Yeah, I would say connecting with nature. I know that seems quite basic and maybe a little bit far removed from the idea of, you know, electric cars or changing light bulbs to save nature. But I think when we appreciate how much it provides for us, when we appreciate the impact it has on just how we feel, like if you go for a walk around some greenery it there's studies to suggest that it improves your memory it improves your um the amount of pain medication you require less antidepressants are um prescribed to people who mm -hmm. live in more green areas you know so connecting with nature opening your eyes to the wonder of nature you know noticing the nature that we have around us even between the cracks in the pavement, you'll see nature like bursting through and it can be beautiful. Maybe there's a little wildflower that's just living there. And just, I think looking at the world through those eyes that you had when you were a kid, I think everybody loved nature when they were younger and it's something that we've lost. So I would suggest that people True. regain that childlike curiosity and enthusiasm for the natural world. And the UAE has a lot of, of options, uh, and some of them are actually coming up recently, including uh, the National Park, I think, in Fujairah. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go to this mountainous area where, you know, it, it's specifically made for people to go and enjoy nature. And nature is all around us, right? Like, it's it's not necessarily far away. It is right on your doorstep. It's it's the air that you breathe, and it's the, the ant walking along. I was literally going to draw on that exact example because that's one thing I, I've I've worked on is just to find nature that's literally just within eyeshot, uh, um, you know, whether it's at home or your work, your commute, there is plenty to go and appreciate. And I think um, really, it, it really comes down to reconnecting. Arabella, thank you so much. This has been really great discussion. If anything, 
we all understand a little bit more about what plastic and you know single-use plastics mm-hmm. are doing out there. Um, the one sort of to do, I think I could give everybody as well to add to what we've talked about reconnecting with nature is just so long as you can do one thing for 30 days, that becomes habit. And that's what we did with refusing plastic bags. Uh, it's it's very small, but it is a step in the right direction. And we can just all build on that. Well, thank you so much, Arabella, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Arabella Willing, a senior manager at Conservation Outreach and Citizen Science at Emirates Nature WWF. I just wanted to remind everybody, get in touch, reach out with your comments, or even with a story to tell. Tell us what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, one word, or find us on our website or YouTube, Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Give us a like and hit subscribe wherever you find or listen to your podcasts. So that's it for us today. Signing off. This is Majid. And that's Abdurrahman Zabi. Bye, guys. See you guys.